podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. But I actually wanted to start with something a little different. Um, I'm actually going to start with a little game, and I believe I have a couple volunteers in the audience to help me out. If you want to come up, can we give these guys a little round of applause as they come up? Cool, so I need one of you on this bag. Don't look at it yet, don't look at it yet, don't look at it yet. And Josh, you're over here. Brilliant, thank you guys. All right, so we've got a little, a little game here, using what's in your bags. And the, the task is really, 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 really simple. All you guys have to do is use what's in your bag to plug into my phone. So, uh, Holly, you're up first. What have we got? What have you got? Ah, oh, how wonderful. Let's see, let's see. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. Round of applause for Holly, everyone. Brilliant. Yeah, You might be able to tell what's coming now, Josh, but it's your turn. Plug into the phone. Really, really simple, really easy. What have we got there? Oh. Oh, we got a we got a razor charger here, not a phone charger. Can you twist it, maybe? What about the other end? Does it work? Hmm. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. Well, unlucky, Josh. Congratulations, Holly. Thank you very much. Feel free to. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. So obviously, as you can see, there was a big problem with this game. The person which had the phone charger was always going to win. They were going to find it really easy and simple, whereas the one with the razor charger is going to find it impossible to plug it in. Um, no matter how hard they like, try and force it in there or twist it or contort it, it's simply incompatible with the device. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, Nathan, why on earth have we done this? What's going on here? Um, well, what James is trying to say throughout this passage is that the ways of the world and the righteousness of God like the razor charger and my phone, are simply incompatible. Righteous living brings life and is the way things are meant to be, whereas wickedness is obviously wrong and is going to leave us broken. So we can keep this in the back of our minds as we jump into the scripture now. So looking at the passage, I don't know if we have any slides. Yes, looking at the passage, we um, see that James splits it into three chunks for us. So firstly, he accuses people of living sinful and unholy lives, ones which reflect the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. But then he reveals to us that despite this, despite our sin and our worldliness, God is still gracious and forgiving. And then finally, he instructs us on how we should live our lives in response to this good news, coming humbly back to, back to God. So let's jump into section one and see this firsthand. So we read that fights and quarrels are arising in the early church because of the desires that are battling within people. As mentioned before in this series, James is writing this letter to the dispersed church early in the church's history. And here James tells us about these fights and quarrels among them, which we may see among ourselves even today, arguments which bring disunity and disruption. Um, but James doesn't just tell us that these fights are happening. He also tells us why they're happening. Um, it's because of the desires that battle within us, or as the ESV puts it, because of the passions which are at war within us. Now, one thing to clarify early on here, here is that these, this word desires or passions it isn't talking about our good and holy desires to sort of walk with Jesus or to serve others in our community. Instead, it's talking about our worldly pleasures and our lusts, things that are against God and not for him. So these fights and quarrels are breaking out because of people's wrong desires. 
However, James reveals to us such a painful irony here too, in that God is willing to give us so much. He says we do not have because we do not ask. God is generous to us and offers us great things, but all too often we choose to go with the alternative. Our minds have the wrong motives, our hearts have the wrong motives, and they're satisfied, uh, sorry, they're set on satisfying our own motives rather than pleasing God's. Problems were arising all the way back then, and they continue to arise today because we choose the world over the king, and the consequences of that are great. Now, it's easy when we read a passage like this and we see a a phrase such like, um, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. And we think to ourselves, well, I haven't murdered anyone, right? Like, I haven't even even thought about it. I haven't come close, you know? So I'm, I'm off the hook, right? I'm good. I'm clear. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case for us. Um, These passions and evil desires are talked commonly throughout the New Testament. Last week, we heard from James 3 about worldly wisdom, which is fueled by bitter envy and selfish ambition, seeking to look wise rather than to be wise. Another another example of these passions we can find in Galatians 5, when Paul lists the so-called works of the flesh. These are things that our sinful nature loves to do, but it's not obedient with God. Some examples listed are sexual immorality, drunkenness, hatred and rage, jealousy and envy, selfishness and impurity. And this is by no means an exhaustive list either, yet I'm pretty sure we all know that we're guilty of at least something on this list. Whether it be getting angry while stuck in traffic, selfishly prioritizing our own needs over other people's, or becoming envious of our so-called friends when we see their posts on Instagram. These examples are just taken from my own experience of how quickly I can turn away from God and towards sinful actions when left to my own devices. It's these same pleasures that Jesus himself speaks of in the parable of the sower that we can read in Luke 8. The seed representing the word of God is sown in the field, but some fell among the thorns which choke the seed. These pleasures that we're talking about are the thorns which choke out the word of God and prevent it from flourishing to beauty in our lives. So we can reflect and ask ourselves, have we chosen to walk away from the living God who knows exactly what we need and will give us everything we need in order to grow, in order to put me first and go after the ways of the world, nurturing the thorn which is just waiting to choke us? Now, when we turn to verse 4, things don't exactly get much brighter for us. As we've heard throughout this series, James really doesn't hold back his punches when he talks to us. He describes our relationship with the world as adulterous. We've cheated on God and gone after evil instead. We're told that a friend of the world is an enemy of God. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. And a friend of evil is an enemy of goodness. The ways of the world and the ways of God are simply incompatible. There is no compromise. There is no 50-50. We can't take the phone cable and cut it in half and take the razor cable, cut that in half, try and fuse them together and expect that to work. It's just never going to happen. Just as Jesus said, we can't serve two masters. And again, there's so much added pain here when we read in verse 5, that God has caused his very own spirit to dwell within us. He has given himself to us, yet we so regularly choose to go our own way, go after our own desires. 
We've we've rejected the fresh water that God provides and have chosen instead to dig our own wells, which are broken and no good. This is what the people of Israel are accused of doing in Jeremiah 2, and there's a little visualization coming up behind me of what this looks like. Um, I know it's a bit small, but essentially we've got this waterfall coming from God of fresh water, but a man instead is keen on using his own well to, to draw up that water. It's actually quite similar to one of the prophetic words earlier, which... It's always quite cool, isn't it? It's nice to know that God knows what he's doing. Um, So God is providing so much life and abundance to us for free if we were to just reach out and receive it from him. But instead, we're adamant to go our own way. We're adamant that our way will work, that our well will provide for us when in fact it's broken and it's going to leave us thirsty. What a tragedy. Just pause, picture it. Does this resemble part of our lives? Are we trying to pull water from wells that are broken? See, God is the great creator who made us and provides for us. He's morally perfect and perfectly loving to us. He has given us great gifts, an identity, and a calling to live for him. God has been so kind and so faithful to us, but have we returned the favor to him? Maybe for some, we're just as in love with our worldly lifestyle as we are with God. We don't want to give up that lifestyle. For others, maybe it's a numbers game. We want to get through life with as much sin as possible while still being welcomed by God at the end of it. And maybe for some of us, we just can't help ourselves. We lust with our eyes. We're easily frustrated by tiny things. Or we just constantly have to one-up our neighbor, neighbor to prove a point. God sees this. God sees us carry on in disobedience and reject him for something else. Just like a wife going after a man other than her husband or vice versa. Imagine how painful that is for God, our Father. Now take a deep breath because this is heavy. These verses are meant to make us feel this way. They're meant to convict us and open our eyes to see where we've chosen the world instead of our God. And let us know how awfully wrong that is. God who loves us so dearly, who has known you, formed you, protected you, and provided you, provided for you, has not been given the place in our lives that he deserves. And all too often, he's become our second priority. Now, thankfully for us, that's not the end of the story, though, because after verses 1 to 5, we come to verse 6, and we enter into the second section um, of this passage. God knows all that we do wrong. God knows everything, but he gives us more grace. God sees us when we choose the world over him, but he gives us more grace. God feels such pain when we turn away from him, but he gives us more grace. A tiny sentence in the middle of this dense passage, but one which carries such great value and importance to us. Following this bad, awful news of our sin being revealed to us, we're given the greatest news of all. God is gracious. He has lavished his grace upon us, filling us with the rich treasure, which is his forgiveness and his mercy. No matter how disobedient we are, no matter how awfully foolish we are, God's grace is greater than that disobedience. No matter how far we push God away, He can't face letting us go because he loves us so dearly. Now, this is beautifully illustrated throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. 
Uh, as God lists Israel's wrong, wrongs doings one after another, there's so many, yet still declares that he's going to redeem them and comfort them because of his great love for them. I love this in Hosea 11. God speaks of how he raised Israel as a parent raises a child. But Israel were determined to turn away from God. They were determined to go after idols instead. Rightfully, this makes God jealous, but his response is this. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. He is a loving, gracious, merciful, and compassionate God towards his children, even when they're disobedient. And we see this throughout the teachings of Jesus too. God's grace as a loving father is revealed to us in the story of the prodigal son, which obviously a lot of you probably know of in Luke 15. The son came to his father and demanded his inheritance early, and he went off and lived a reckless life with it. And if you know the story, it didn't go too well for him. He ended up blowing all his money and having to hire himself out to work feeding the pigs. And he was so hungry and so poor that he just wished that he could eat what the pigs were eating. He has this idea to go back to his father and offer himself not as a son to him, but as a servant. Can you imagine the guilt and the shame that he must have been carrying in that moment, heading back to his father's house after squandering his wealth? His father had every right in that moment to reject his son, just as his son had rejected the father earlier. However, what does the father do? When he saw his son, he felt compassion on him. He ran towards him and embraced him, and he rejoiced in his return home, throwing a great celebration for him. The father has grace on his son to not treat him as his actions deserved, but to treat him out of the love of his heart. See, God is his father. Hasn't he given us... God is our father, isn't he? He's given us everything that we have. Every gift and blessing, even our very life, is given to us because of him. Yet have our minds and our desires been set on him, or have we prioritized our own passions? But what is his response when he sees us come humbly back towards him? He has amazing grace on all who come. I find that incredible. If our sins were to fill this entire room, God's grace would fill the whole of Loughborough. It's so much bigger, it's so much greater, and it just swallows it up completely. And the question is, who else is like this? What other person, what other being, what other God is so gracious and so merciful? I challenge you, look high, look low, look far and wide. I promise you, you will not find another one like the living God. No one else has been betrayed so greatly and no one else loves so freely to outpour with his grace and mercy. Now this is good news. So let's just recap on what we've covered so far. All of us have passions and desires that are contrary to God's will. And all too many times we have chosen to go with our heart rather than with our God. We've cheated on God. But God has spoken and his word is final and his message is grace. He has blessed us to set us free. But how do we respond? This is what we get into in the final section of this passage. James tells us that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble, or in some translations, gives grace to the humble. 
Last week we heard from Tilly that the Greek word translated as humility in James 3 is proutes, and it's related to gentleness and meekness. Here we have a different flavor of the word humility uh, coming from the Greek tapenos, which is related to being lowly and God-dependent rather than being self-dependent. See, God loves a humble and contrite heart coming before him, a heart that is aware of the mistakes we've made and feels sorry for it, willing to accept our mistakes and accept the sin that we've lived. God wants us to come openly before him, so we don't have to stand here pretending like we haven't done anything wrong. We don't have to stand here pretending we're justified in our sins, using excuses or, or blaming someone else for what we've done wrong. No, we're not self-dependent. We're God-dependent. We instead need to draw near to God in all humility, fully aware of our guilt, because we know that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us, for he is a great comforter. Now, reading the passage earlier, verse 9 might have raised a few eyebrows. Uh, it goes, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. But I think here it shows us how we're meant to feel about our worldliness. It's painful to see how good God is, how loving he is towards us, yet how we've still chosen to reject him. It's not meant to feel comfortable for us straight away. And this pain is meant to drive us towards this contrite, broken heart so we can come before God humbly. Then from this place of a humble heart and a contrite soul, amazing things can happen, for that's where the Spirit moves. See, throughout the gospel message, God doesn't promise just to save us. He promises to sanctify us and make us like him too. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, will cleanse our consciences and acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. God will clean us. God will remove our evil desires, our pleasures and our sins which lead us to death and instead will give us a heart to love and serve him. So now is the time in revelation of our sin and of God's love for us. Now's the time for our faith to take action and for our actions to reflect our God. Now this can look a thousand different ways, but James summarizes it as to stand firm in temptation from the devil, not fall into the ways of the world and cave into our heart's desires. And secondly, to purify ourselves, fixing our eyes upon our eternal hope and fixing our eyes on the infinite glory of God. If we do this only by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live our lives in unison with God, the way we're meant to do life with him, using the correct charger for our device rather than a broken alternative. So in summary, and to, to, to round things off here, James writes to us to, to convict us of our worldliness, of how we so often choose our own desires over God's will. Our sin is real, and our sin is horrible. God has given us everything, and we've still rejected our maker so many times. Yet no matter how great our sin is, no matter how many times we've chosen the path away from God, rather than the one towards him, he gives us more grace. He has forgiven us, and he will redeem us by his mercy. So let us come before the King Jesus Christ.
in all humility and brokenness over our sins if needs be. And may we be changed by the Holy Spirit to walk obediently and live our lives unto our Saviour. Amen.